Welcome to Physicians Weekly. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Physicians Weekly's podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Rachel Giles from Medical Medical Publishers, in collaboration with Physicians Weekly. The Physicians Weekly podcast provides thought leader insights on the latest medical news, clinical trial coverage, and advances in medicine and healthcare. In this episode, we have two unrelated interviews, the second of which is with Professor Matthias Stilius. He's from the University of Münster in Germany, and he comments on his study outcomes and implications from the ASAP Phase three trial for the management of relapsed or refractory acute myeloid leukemia using intensive chemotherapy in advance of allogenic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, or HCT as he calls it. But first, we have Dr. Alex McDonald. He's a primary care physician and frequent contributor to the Physicians Weekly podcast as a board member. And this time he speaks with Hussein Lalani, who's a board-certified internist and fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Dr. Lalani's research focuses on understanding the challenges and inequities patients face in accessing affordable prescription drugs and evaluating the impact of health policies and interventions. He's a frequent opinion contributor on health policy, public health, and health misinformation, and he serves on the National Steering Committee, Doctor for America's Drug Affordability Action Team. They talk about what all doctors in the U.S. should know about pharmaceutical pricing and the implications that process can bear. Enjoy listening. Hey everyone, welcome to the Physicians Weekly Podcast this week or month or whatever day it is you happen to be listening here. I am joined with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Hussain Lalani, but he has some interesting work that he's done regarding pharmaceutical pricing and policy and research as well too. So I thought it'd be great to have him join us here on the podcast today and just talk. So Dr. Lalani, thank you so much for joining us. Just start by telling us a little bit about who you are and, and what you do. Thanks, Dr. McDonald. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. I am a primary care physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a health policy researcher and a fellow at the Program on Regulation, Therapeutics, and Law. It's an academic research center that's independent at Harvard Medical School and, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. And we study essentially all elements of regulation and pricing and access around prescription drugs. So just a small topic of interest is basically what you're saying, right? Uh, we have an awesome team, and it's really cool because it's like multidisciplinary with doctors, lawyers, epidemiologists, ethicists, and we all really work together to understand this super complex thing called drug pricing. Uh, yeah. And collaborators globally, too, which is pretty neat to learn from them. Complex, I think, is probably an understatement. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the history of how we got here and why the U.S. pharmaceutical market is so different than those around the rest of the world? Yeah, you know, the pharmaceutical market is really paid for by the health insurance, by health insurance in the United States, which is a fragmented patchwork of different policies over the years. And it really started back in the 1930s. Uh, actually, the first insurance company was Blue Cross Blue Shield, who was offering essentially a, a policy to its workers in Texas. From there, it was a Texas-based hospital essentially was offering some insurance for its workers. And mm-hmm. later on, uh, due to labor policies and changes with World War II, there was a limit on wage growth. And so health insurance really became a sort of benefit that was offered by companies to retain their workers. And over the years, uh, the government essentially made health insurance benefits non-taxable and that expanded. And and so now the majority of adults in the United States under the age of 65 get their health insurance from their job. 
But there are, you know, many other payers of health insurance in the U.S. And that includes, you know, Medicare and Medicaid and CHIP. And, you know, of course, people, individuals who get their health insurance through the Affordable Care Act. And finally, we still have a fair bit, um, about 8 or 10% of people who are uninsured. And so because of all these different payers and our complicated market, drug prices are paid for differently than they are in other countries where there may be one single payer or at least a, a way to pool together everyone's supply power when they're purchasing drugs. I mean, it's much different in the United States. So, so part of the reason we're here now is because pharmaceutical benefit essentially was tied in with health insurance, which, as we know, has sort of become this beast, which is very different than the way it's structured in a lot of other parts of the world in the country. Is that correct? Yeah, and there's a lot of different policies in our country that are different than in other countries about how we choose to essentially pay for drugs and how we allow prices and costs to be set. So in the United States, you know, we offer patents for new drugs that come to market. And we have what essentially is a government-granted monopoly for a certain amount of time. It's usually around 12 to 16 years mm -hmm. um, average. And the patent lasts about 20 years. And, and But there are, because of that, there's only one company that sets the price for those years. And there, we don't have a negotiation by and large for everyone in, in the United States. And so compared to other countries like Germany, for example, that starts negotiating drug prices after the first year that a new drug comes to market, we approve drugs and then the companies essentially set the starting price. And there are some discounts that you know come along the way but that is a big sort of piece of why drugs are expensive and we designed some systems that we thought would work <laughs> uh, at least back in the day to help lower drug prices with generic drugs and and then eventually biosimilars but over the years we've seen that it doesn't really work as well as was intended yeah. And I think there's been a lot of high profile cases recently with, you know, very, very old generic cheap drugs, which are being a lot of companies can make money on those physician, those medications. So they end up, you know, selling the patents, selling the rights. One company sort of, you know, consolidates and is the only company making that drug. And then the prices increase significantly. I think, you know, doxycycline, I think is one that I remember. And, and insulin, I think has been in the news a lot recently that it's just exceptionally expensive. And it's only created by just a very few number of companies as well, too. Can you comment on that? and give any thoughts. I know that's probably a little little loaded, um, but I think it's really important that we all kind of uh, are aware about these issues. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. Such important things. So, you know, competition is what kind of you referred to is a big part of our market-based system for prescription drugs in the U.S. And so we know that when we do have competitive markets, that, for example, when we have more than five or so generic manufacturers, we do see the prices go down over time. And, and after you have 10 manufacturers, there's it's about 80% reduction in drug prices. But when there's only one or two companies that make a prescription drug, the, there's not a lot of competition. And there might be some collusion, which has at least been alleged for insulin, uh, where there's only three companies that make insulin products in the United States. And so that can be become a big problem. And, you know, there are laws to try and transition drugs from becoming brand name drugs to generic drugs where there can be more competition. But sometimes there are games that are played that make it hard for that transition to happen. And we've kind of seen some of that recently. You mentioned insulin being a great example of where, you know, a drug that was invented over 100 years ago now by um, a medical student and a Canadian doctor and sold for $1, actually, uh, for the public benefit is now, um, you know, hundreds of dollars a month in the United States, um, especially if you don't have health insurance. And thankfully, some of that is changing with the inflation 
Inflation Reduction Act and with insulin prices being capped at $35 per month very shortly. But there are other ways in which companies do make it harder for competition to enter. You may have seen recently on the New York Times had a really nice piece about Humira, uh, mm-hmm. which is you know, the biggest blockbuster drug ever. And it's had over like $20 billion in sales last year, but they've developed essentially a wall of patents around their product. And so it's really hard if you're another company trying to come to the market to try and produce that drug because you're worried you're going to be sued. And so, but actually it's amazing that we're recording this today because today is the first day in 20 years that Humira or Adalimumab, which is, you know, a common drug used for rheumatoid arthritis and many other autoimmune conditions, today's the first day that a new competitor will come to the market by Amgen. And it's one of the biosimilars that will compete with Humira. And over the rest of this year, we'll start to see more competition. But for the last 20 years, there's been over $100 billion in sales. Uh, a lot of that was because of the strategies, uh, mostly legal strategies, that the companies pursued to protect their invention and that the U.S. government has allowed. Makes me think of the quote that that every system is perfectly designed to get the results it wants. I, I'm, I'm terribly misquoting that, but it makes me makes me think about that. You know, and it's such a complicated system as well, too. And I I think there's a huge health equity component to this as well, too. So people who have insurance are able to often you know get these medications, and people who don't have insurance or who have insurance with with less coverage are often not able to get these medications. And this can be for the example we're, we're talking about here with rheumatoid arthritis. If you can get these people on these medications early, you can preserve joint health and you can prevent a disease versus treating somebody once they already have disease as well too. So there's really a a huge health equity component, which I think, you know, complicates this matter as well too, because we, as physicians, we obviously want to help our patients preserve health and prevent disease. But at the same time, we are often stuck sometimes in terms of what patients can, can't afford and, and what their insurance will or won't pay. And even what market they're in, if they're in one state versus another state, the prices can be vastly different. It's a little bit complicated, I think. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, it's like most doctors don't even know the price of the drug they prescribe. At least when you go to a restaurant or the you know grocery store, prices are up because of inflation. But at least there's a sticker, and right. it tells you exactly how much it is. And if you don't like it, you know you might choose to pass or budget for that. But prescription drugs are different. Like most doctors don't really know the the cost of the drugs they prescribe. And like you said, the insurance part is complicated. And you know, three in ten patients say that they had to essentially ration their medicines because they couldn't afford. Them. I mean, that's from a Kaiser Family Foundation survey that was just done in 2021. And so, you know, skipping drugs, cutting pills in half, just not picking them up or using over-the-counter therapies instead, it sucks because it really affects people's health. And for drugs like Humira that can be really effective if you can afford them, then, you know, patients end up having complications and end up spending more time in the hospital. And so just more and more expensive healthcare. You know, healthcare is the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States, mm-hmm. which is incredibly tragic that people are not able to live their lives well because they can't afford health care. And drugs contributes to that, you know, as part of that problem. I think one of my biggest frustrations is when I see a patient and I prescribe a medication, I can see the very next patient and prescribing the same medication and they can pay vastly different amounts for for those medications as well too. Why is there no transparency here? Why, how are we in the situation where different states, different pharmacies, different insurance plans all have different rates for some of these medications as well too? Is there is there any single reason here or can you explain why this this is? Yeah, 
Yeah, I kind of, that's a great question. It takes me back to that quote you had earlier. It's like uh, the system is designed to work in the way it works. And right. there's this thing called information asymmetry. And it's like this intentional hiding of prices by different stakeholders in the pharmaceutical market. So drug companies, you know, they set the initial price of a drug, which is called the list price. And for a brand name drug, that's kind of where the negotiations start. And then there are, as part of the supply chain, there are, you know, insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers in the United States, which are these third-party entities that negotiate drug prices and set formularies for insurance plans. And so they go in and they buy a collection of drugs at a certain price and they try to negotiate the best deal and get some discounts. But we'd also, we don't really know like how much they get in terms of discounts. There are some proprietary databases and, and locked away sources of information that, that I use in some of my research and our group does to try and understand rebates, which is you know a type of discount. And eventually some of that gets pumped to patients and there's a different drug benefit plan for each person. And so like you said, you know, if you're on Medicaid, you might actually not pay very much at all because the state and the federal government will together pay for the vast majority of the prescription drug. But but if you have Medicare, you could end up paying $10,000 for a really expensive cancer therapy, depending on, you know, the type of plan that you have. And so... And it depends if it's picked up at the pharmacy versus if it's administered in the clinic as well. That's, again, a whole other issue, right? Where you get the medication as well can dictate cost and coverage too, which is just, just mind-boggling to me. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'll, I'll yeah. try not to complain too much. Yeah, no, I mean, hey, we should be complaining about this. It, it's, it is really frustrating and it's so confusing for doctors, for all medical professionals and for patients. And part of that is because like, depending on where you pick it up, there can be markups by the pharmacy or by specific clinic or hospital where you're getting an injection or infusion. You know, that definitely affects what you end up paying out of pocket. And the sad thing is, you know, we know that as prices go up, people are less likely to get their medicines and, and you know, they're less likely to use them. And so it does have a direct relationship in, you know, whether you're willing to seek care. And, that, and that's just really, really messed up. Yeah, that's certainly, certainly true. Can you, you could sort of mention this a little bit about these large groups negotiating for drug prices. Until very recently, there was virtually no ability whatsoever for the U.S. government, for Medicare and, and Medicaid to negotiate drug prices. Can you talk about the momentum which is building there right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll separate Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, they work a little bit differently. But for so for Medicare, you're right. Um, it started in 1965. And then the drug benefit uh, came about around 2003. And I think it went into place around 2006 officially. And since then, Medicare has been forbidden by the law to negotiate drug prices. And that was part of a deal that happened when the law was initially created. But it could not use its collective bargaining power as the largest buyer of prescription drugs in the world to negotiate with drug companies. But last year, the U.S. government and Congress passed the uh, Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, and it includes a whole host of uh, provisions to help lower drug prices for patients with Medicare. Uh, soon, Medicare will now be able to negotiate drug prices. Uh, previously, the federal government and Medicare through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services was prevented from negotiating drug prices. And so there is this exciting development where uh, starting soon, uh, Medicare through CMS and Department of Health and Human Services will be able to negotiate drug prices for a limited number of expensive medicines, starting with 10 drugs. And those prices will technically go into effect in 2026. 
the list of drugs that will be negotiated will be decided later this year in 2023, and then the negotiation process will start. You know, there is definitely some hope here that this new law will allow Medicare to finally lower some drug prices. And it does have some other provisions in it that are pretty interesting. So one of them, which actually began in 2023, is that, you know, drug companies are now required to pay rebates if they increase the price of a drug faster than inflation. And that's something that's actually been happening with Medicaid back since uh, before 2017. And so this will now be in effect for Medicare as well. And really, I think one of the biggest things that's going to make a difference for patients with Medicare is it starts in 2025, which is that there will be a cap on total out-of-pocket costs for prescription drugs. And it'll be capped at $2,000. And so, now, so if you're spending more than $2,000 now out-of-pocket starting in 2025, that'll be reduced to that amount. And then starting in 2026, all the negotiated prices will go into effect and slowly over time it will increase. And and hopefully we're going to start to see prices come down a lot more and that translate to costs coming down for patients. Yeah, certainly a pretty major development. If you think about this is something that's been going on or been in place since 1965 as well, too. So I digress. This is such a great conversation. We could go on all day. Well, just one last question, which I think is really important. What can physicians do to educate ourselves and to to help educate our patients regarding how they're able to afford their medications, which I I know is a very small question, but what would you recommend? Yeah, physician recommendations. That's a great question. I could probably share some resources with you that we could probably link as part of the podcast that, you know, really provide a simple understanding of of why you know drug prices are the way they are and, and how the system works and just kind of having just a little bit of basic understanding about the way that drugs are priced and then in terms of like helping patients directly that understanding will then inform kind of the next steps which is you know the first main question you can always ask a patient is do you have health insurance and you know you can check in your medical record or in your documentation like what kind of insurance do they have and once you can figure that out, you probably won't have time uh, to look at the specific benefit plan because you got to go on to the next patient. So, but just by knowing if they have Medicare or a type of Medicare plan, or if they have Medicaid, or if they have insurance through their job, or if they don't have insurance, you can figure out what kind of discounts are available to them. And so the next step is to really figure out like, do they need a brand name drug or a generic drug? And generally speaking, generic drugs are much cheaper. But like, as you mentioned, there are some cases of drugs and certain insurance plans that where generics can also be expensive. So if a patient cannot afford their drug or that it's just too expensive, then you can start to look at different discounts. And so if it's a brand name drug, you know, there's things called copay cards. And some of our listeners probably know about these uh, patient assistance programs. They do involve kind of some paperwork and headaches, but they can, if they work out and your patient meets the requirements, they can get drugs for really cheap through that. And then if it's for a generic drug, there are different types of discounts that you can look up, that your patients can look up as well on things like GoodRx that help you to find, you know, cheap drugs at local pharmacies near you. And, you know, there is also the new Mark Cuban Cost Plus drug company that's also trying to lower drug prices for generic drugs. So that might be an option. I wish that was one single thing I could say, just do this, you know, I know, make it all better. But uh, as, you've, right, exactly. as you've probably noticed, it's uh, not so simple, unfortunately. 
Yeah. So I guess it sounds like the biggest thing we can do is just educate ourselves and to, to understand more about the system and then educate our patients regarding the multitude of different options and ways that they can afford their medications or pay for their medications. I had a feeling you dropped Mark Cuban in there somewhere, you know, being a Dallas Mavericks fan. Anyone who's not familiar with the Mark Cuban and his cost plus drugs, check that out. It's really pretty unique in an interesting way. They're trying to shake up the market. This has been phenomenal. We could go on and on. But as I said, we, we try to keep this short and high yield. Dr. Lalani, thank you so much for your time, for your knowledge. And then thanks for all the work you guys are doing. It sounds like a pretty phenomenal team you have there and excited to see where things go over the next couple of years. Yeah, thanks so much, Dr. McDonald. And I hope to be back and chat some more if you guys are interested. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Next, we have Professor Matthias Stelius from Münster, Germany, and he's talking about his ASAP 3 Phase 3 trial, which looks at the management of relapsed or refractory acute myeloid leukemia, or AML and using chemotherapy in advance of allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, so in other words, HCT. Anyway, enjoy. You know, the real question is, is should we be using intensive chemotherapy prior to allo-HCT in relapsed and refractory AML? Primary question. Probably not, but probably in some patients it would help. So the main message is for the international audience is that allo-HCT is quite effective in patients with active disease. So until now, it is an RSCT and patient with refractory disease was not considered a standard treatment option. So some uh, or most of the, the international centers, the U.S. centers, would say that they will go for uh, an RSCT in case of a very good disease control or better a hematological remission. And uh, what we are now showing is that a patient with an active AML have a quite fair chance to, to get in a remission and stay in a remission for original time. So that is very, one very important message. And the other message is obviously that in patients with induction failure, or probably also with in patients with relapse, however, these numbers of patients with relapse disease uh, are only one third of the whole uh, study population. But anyway, it is not necessary to perform a salvage uh, therapy. The salvage therapy can be quite effective. So we have a CR rate with high-dose chemotherapy of around 50%. But this did not transform in a better overall survival for the whole study population. So actually, it is not necessary to go to a salvage therapy when a direct and timely allocity is possible. I see. And what were some of the limitations uh, to the study that you would like to see resolved maybe in future studies? As a limitation is that obviously we included only or had only the classical salvage therapy. So nowadays, some centers and also we actually do some selective patients the same use the salvage regimen until transplant like ATSA venetoclax. It's obviously not approved, but anyway, it's an option. It's not so toxic like the classical chemotherapy. So we have no idea with that kind of salvage therapy would we would have the same results. Actually, I do believe that we would have the same results, but we have no data on that. And the main limitation is that when you try to adapt our study to the broader patient population, you have to have the capacity to perform an other transplant as soon as possible. So you have a donor available, and so at least in Germany, when we have a patient with a newly diagnosed leukemia, he gets a donor search with primary diagnosis, and not only at the time when we think about transplant. So the workup is quite a standard workup for all leukemia patients. 
and this allows to perform transplant as soon as possible. This is not the same in other countries, and probably that might be a limitation when you uh, when centers still stick to their practical guidelines as they had previously only perform a donor search when they have a relapse disease or a right vector disease. That is clearly too late, and then you can not perform a as a transplant, as uh, the title of our study uh, is. I see. And so what is coming on in the future? What's on the horizon for as follow-up for this? So actually what we would like to address now is the impact of novel salvage regimens, as already mentioned, a combination of evinitoclax-based uh, therapy. But this has to be tested in randomized trials comparing direct transplant versus the new approach. To my point of view or to our point of view, makes no sense to implement novel salvage regimens with novel agents without testing and the alternative of a direct transplant. So novel therapies have to show that they are better than the direct transplant. And given the, the situation that usually all patients fit for an intensive chemotherapy uh, usually go for transplant after the salvage therapy or directly. So investigators have to show in the future that are better than the standard direct transplant. Perfect. I just have one more question I should have asked it first as well. Could you describe the unmet need in patients and how this study fulfills some of that? So the unmet need is clearly that it's, uh, nowadays not possible to get every patient fit for transplant, suffering from a relapse refractory AML to another transplant. And the unmet need is clearly that we have to improve our treatments to allow more patients to go to a yeah, obviously successful transplant. All right. Thank you so much, Dr. Stelius. I thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. That's all the time we have for this podcast. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks for listening to Physicians Weekly. Physicians Weekly is produced in collaboration with Medicom Medical Publishers and Physicians Weekly. 